Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. Today's episode has an unusual title that is maybe only partially self-evident. A Trip to the Aquarium, a deep dive into modern American mythology. It's a mouthful, if nothing else. Let's focus on that second part, mythology, or the myths belonging to some kind of religious or cultural tradition. It's a term that describes an art form that's more prevalent in media today than it has ever been. Comic book stories and characters. While many of the characters we know today go as far back as the 60s, the 40s, or the 30s, their stories have been told and retold so many times and in so many different styles and mediums that they stand now as Greek and Roman gods once did. They are the stories of heroes. They're the stories of love, battle, loss, growth, and rebirth that audiences have gravitated towards since Action Comics number 1 to the most recent releases like Falcon and the Winter Soldier or the Snyder Cut. And we'll be going on this deep dive into this modern American mythology with some special guests. This is a crossover episode, or maybe I should say crossover issue or event, given the topic at hand. We'll introduce our special guests in roughly one minute and 15 seconds. And with that, we cue the music. Our guests joining us remotely today have been at this whole podcasting thing a little bit longer than we have, going back to 2013. You can find the Omniplex podcast, which is a place for all film and film-adjacent fixations, at theomniplex.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have all three of the podcast hosts with us now. Just so our audience can hear who's who, we'll introduce you one at a time. Welcome, Albert Wiltfong. Thank you. Uh, Welcome, Austin Shin. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And welcome, Zephyr Ostrowski. Hello. Now, I need to also mention that there is a connection that has led to this crossover uh, that goes all the way back to the year 2009 when Zephyr and I were both on the Bishop Dwanger speech team together. Yes. We then also went to the University of St. Francis together, uh, all three of us in the art school. And I should say, like, because of that, this conversation feels like it was a long time coming. It, it really has. All right, so we're super excited to have all you guys with us. The first two questions are definitely of the superhero origin story variety. Tell us what first led you guys into podcasting and when the Omniplex first came into being. It really got its start like so many things with the OU Loves. <laughs> yeah. Um, Albert and I decided it would be fun to do a riff of the OU Loves, and we wrote um, an entire riff and recorded it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the gen- MST3K style. Yeah, because, of course, like anybody, we're huge MST3K fans. Uh, mm-hmm. And Albert and I have known each other since 2011, or 2010. Yeah. We actually met through a mutual ex- uh, well, she was then your girlfriend. 
Yes. And she was my ex-girlfriend. And so that was how. Yeah, that that ended and uh, we stayed friends. Yeah, we stayed. <laughs> obviously, we've stayed quite close, you know. A few years later, we did that, that Ooey Loves thing, not intending it to be the impetus of a podcast. But then we're like, well, we talk a lot on film. Like, we should we should do a podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, we both have had a little bit of previous podcast experience, so we hit the ground running there. And so we just named it after the room. It was called The Film Room back then. Yeah. Actually, and, uh, I want to point out that the first yeah. time I was on a podcast was when I was on mm-hmm. yours, and it was to talk about uh, Scott Pilgrim, uh, That's because right. I'd gotten to see it two and a half weeks early. I'm still uh, jealous. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I will say that Zephyr came on board because we were we were doing an episode about Christian movies, and Zephyr had... Yeah. Well, Zephyr, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, it wasn't until like spring 2015 that I came across uh, Austin and Albert on Twitter, just in like my early days of joining Twitter. And I forget which one of you linked me to your cast. I think that might have been Austin because I remember being introduced to you. Yeah, because um, yeah, that's because like Zephyr, I'm autistic, and yes. that was our first immediate connection. And so the like my introduction to Austin and Albert was through an episode where they wrote a fake movie of sorts, uh, Penguin Geddon. Penguin Geddon, still one of our favorites. <laughs> yes. A couple months down the line, they were pitching an idea for Christian films, and I had mentioned that well, I do have some experience in being well at the time just one, but now two, thanks to uh, Homeless for the Holidays which was shot within the uh, Northeast Indiana area. They decided to uh, bring me on board. And within that cast, we covered a good span of like some of the major eras, like the 70s scare era classic, If Footman Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The uh, Left Behind, the the first Left Behind adaptation with uh, Kirk Cameron. And then we tackled uh god's not dead i'm still sorry first one i'm still with you so yeah. sounds like an it could only go up from there situation well, it was one of those things we kept having zephyr on as a guest when we did an episode on autism in film we had zephyr on mm-hmm. and then eventually yeah. it was just one of those things zephyr just kept rolling on as a guest because we had a group chat going and mm-hmm. we never end still going never ended yeah that literally it's how we all <laughs> jumped into this cast we just kept Zephyr on board and we even met up in 2018 and to tie into uh, the theme of this episode we all were there for infinity. uh infinity war yeah yeah so albert and i actually met up for avengers so that was kind of our yes, thought was it was going to be us trying to do that um it just got to the point where it was getting weird that zephyr was on every episode to the point where we wouldn't record without zephyr we just hit the realization of let's rename, let's rebuild. Yeah, let's just let's just rebrand. Rebrand. Yeah. We decide to close the, the film room, as it were, with a, a dive into Ralph Bakshi's cool world and that whole mess. We burned it down. Yeah. <laughs> we did not go out on a high note. 
Yeah, we uh we wanted to expand our format a little bit and not just talk about film. And fittingly, talk, you know, be able to talk about anyway, our first episode yeah. was radio dramas. So there you go. Yeah, our first episode for the rebrand was uh Dirk Mags. And the next one we're gonna record is uh on concept albums. We're having fun, we're getting out there. I mean, we can certainly relate to the the broadening of the horizons. I mean, there's a reason that our podcast is just generally about storytelling because that allows you to do a lot of things. Yeah, it doesn't oh, yeah. pigeonhole you into only talking about movies or comics. It's, it allows you to nice. cover the whole broad spectrum. Yes, indeed. I, I want to speak to a couple of things you guys uh, referenced before I uh, pose the next question. Sure. Uh, the, the first being that the story of Zephyr's edition kind of just reminds you of the musician that shows up and like, oh, he's, he's jamming with us, brings his guitar yeah. to practices and gigs every now and again. <laughs> and inevitably that guy is going to wind up in the yeah. band. The Atticus Ross of the group. <laughs> or the David Gilmore of the group. <laughs> your podcast is so film focused, but then as you said, you, you got to broaden your horizons a little bit. And now more than ever, uh, the arenas of film, of TV, of games, they all are pulling from so many sources that are based off of comic books, which exist as this modern American mythology that we have all shared in experience. And I think with varying degrees of overlap, I think as we discuss different things and bring up different uh, creators and story arcs and characters here, uh, there's going to be more than a little bit of overlap. Uh, But if each of you could in turn tell us about your first experience uh, with comic books, and I think after you guys go, we'll of course uh, share ours. Austin, do you want to go last? Take, I want to go last. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, Albert, did you want to go? Sure, I'll go. Uh, okay. So, of course, um, I spent a lot of my youth cracking open the Sunday funnies and reading them top to bottom, even the ones I didn't like, because it was there. It was comics. But I think in my adult life, the first time I ever really seriously opened like uh, a um, superhero type deal was i remember being a fan of kevin smith back in the day and on his podcast he raved about oh you know watchman is happening and you know saw the trailer for that and went huh i think i need to read the source this sounds interesting i just remember opening it and being enthralled because it was told in such a unique way and that you know, the movie tries to capture, but I felt like only really works on the page, like as far as balloon placement and, you know, dialogue um, just overlapping with other scenes and, uh, you know, just a way that could that was unique to the page. And also, you know, the interjections at the end of each chapter, as it were, like newspaper clippings. And I felt it was an awesome way to tell a story. From there, it kind of went toward like I got in, I got super into Scott Pilgrim and just other things. Mostly, my area of focus in comic is ones like series with limited runs because it's it's easier to digest for me. I own a fair bit of those and like a lot of trades, not not very many like individual comics, but that got me into uh, Why the Last Man, which I still haven't finished. You're going to want to do that. Yes, you are. Yeah. I know. I have been meaning to. Like, I even... I went so far... I've read, like, the first two... Um, like, there are ten... Yep. 24 hours I read them all. I've, I've done the first two. Right now, I would say that Austin is kind of my 
dealer as it were like uh he reads everything so i kind of i kind of trust his word as to like what what's good and what i should uh get into that sounds like my relationship with ben uh inevitably anytime i go over he's like oh you haven't read this batman comic here i'll just pull it off the shelf and bring it back next time you're over well and i also uh the reference to why the last man i didn't share that with you but you did borrow ex machina from me so still pulling from the the brian k vaughn uh (laughs) fish tank as it were i guess for me going to uh when i first really started reading comics like yes i also read the the sunday comics as well and like the weekly strips so even serialized stuff like uh alley-oop and for better or for worse those i i know i definitely read and i would uh take out regular compilation trades for garfield from from the library just going through up to whenever the current point was and just seeing the style evolve and then there was also the uh, comic section for disney adventures where they had stuff yeah yeah where they had stuff like a jetpack pets kid gravity picking up those trades every now and then and then also getting the limited edition trades from disney adventures where it was just the comics and nothing else i remember definitely uh doing that and then as i got older and was able to move from like the children's section to the teen section of my library i saw like the amount of graphic novels that they had and so i started uh looking at properties like uh, Persepolis and Mouse, as well mm-hmm. as uh, whatever uh, manga was there. So One Piece and Neon Genesis Evangelion for sure. And then also just reading back issues of Mad. Uh, it, yeah. it counts. It, it counts. They, oh, yeah, they Mad definitely counts. Does count. Count. I guess for me, reading comics has been... It's been off and on lately. It's like I did the bulk of my reading as a high schooler and as a college student. And every now and then I'll pick up a trait like uh, that I started reading as an individual comic. And then when I was down to see Austin and Albert, I picked up a few more issues there. So I remember that. As for recently, my last trade that I picked up was the first volume for Scooby Apocalypse. So when I get time, I'll, I'll try and get the rest of them picked up because it's a lot better than what people give it credit for. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to have to hit my story with bullet points because I have a long history in comics. The first really that I can remember is my dad has a Smithsonian book, a comic book, like classic comic book stories. And so as a kid, I read that. So that was how I knew Captain Marvel's origin, Batman's origin, Red Tornado, um, Superman, you know, all the big ones that weren't Marvel. Um, Then it had little Lulu in it. It had stuff that is indelibly imprinted on me. So that was always sort of in the background for me. And especially Captain Marvel's origins, that really made me desperate to ever eventually get to see a movie with the character. And, of course, we did finally get one with Shazam. So, you know, yay. 
Then from there, it was Archie. I, I jumped onto Archie. I used to take Archie books on trips. Uh, I'm still a great, great fan of that series. You know, I, re- I grew up with comic strips, so I had that very much in my background. But then what really got me into mainstream comics, especially, was the prose novels that were coming out in the 1990s from Boulevard Books, the Marvel novels, and the novelizations of Batman Nightfall, Death and Return of Superman. You know, I didn't have the money for the trades. You know, my allowance wasn't going to pay for $60 worth of trades so I could read Death of Superman, but it was going to pay for the novelization. So I read those, and what it all built to was in 2002 with Free Comic Book Day being on the weekend of of Spider-Man. And... I mean, I was hooked. I was, I was in uh, they because the issue that year was Ultimate Spider-Man number one. I read it and I was instantly hooked. I was like, okay, this is great. I thought the art was amazing. I thought the writing was great. And so, at the time, Marvel had the first eighteen issues of Ultimate Spider-Man online. So I read those. I was hooked, and because I was, I didn't have the next issue. I had to go out to the comic store to buy it, and I would pro- I would probably read that title for two or three years, but then I would jump into Daredevil because the, that movie was coming out, and that was the time of Brian Michael Bendis' Daredevil, which was the premium, the best the character's ever been, in my opinion. Not just nostalgia speaking, because I read pretty much all of Daredevil at this point. You know, then of course I got, well, there was X-Men coming up. So I, I read some X-Men. Um, so I kind of, the movies were very definitely a guide. Sometimes it would work. Bruce Jones's Hulk run was at the same time. And, well, I, I'm kind of with a lot of people that that run has its issues. I like parts of it. I don't. But then, of course, you know, I started reading DC uh, because, you know, I loved Batman. So I, I picked up some Batman trades. I picked up some Superman trades. I just like. I just I started reading everything, and the library in Little Rock really went all in on graphic novels. So I started getting to read everything: Tower of Babel, um, Justice League International, um, everything under the sun. And that's kind of basically where at the pace that I've been ever since. I have a subscription to Marvel Unlimited. I sometimes have a subscription to DC Comics Infinite. It depends upon what my budget allows for the month. But yeah, that's been. That's been my stance is I've taken trips to go to comic shops. I'm increasingly kind of getting a little bit embittered with the experience, to be honest. Uh, the collector's market is starting to price me out. But yeah, that's my experience. My first experience with comics would have been end of middle school, so seventh or eighth grade. And I remember going into our library and sort of like you said, Austin, you know, I'd never really been into comics and certainly didn't have the money to pay for individual issues, but picked up uh, that full edition of Batman Nightfall and just devoured it in like one day. And from that point on, I was in love with comics. But it's it it's been a relationship of convenience almost. It's like if I have access to them, then I'll tear through them. Uh, recently, I read through all of Invincible in like a week. But yeah, like it's not a regular every day I'm picking up a comic and flipping through it. For me, I can definitely relate to, I think, what uh, some of us have spoken to, the the childhood element of it. The funnies, to an extent, but more specifically the peanuts. Yes. And that, too, 
was helped by the fact that there was also other media. There were cartoons to watch. There were movies that had these strange and trippy sequences, just given how old the films were, that maybe aren't going to land with a three- or four-year-old in the 90s. But that was still, I think, if I'm looking for the first gateway, that was it. And then a little bit later on, I started getting into uh, Batman comics, usually by checking them out at the library. Uh, there was one specific uh, six-issue uh, collected trade, uh, Batman Gotham Adventures, yes. that was based off of the uh, the final season of the animated series when they did the, the New Adventures redesign. And that was by Ty Templeton. And I actually met him at Comic-Con a few years back. And oh, God. throughout this conversation, I'm realizing to what extent I am just I'm aching for being able to get back to to, to big Comic Cons and to Gen Con again, <laughs> uh, but I I met Ty Templeton and I basically told him what I just told you guys. Like this was a a staple of getting me into Batman and getting me into comics, and I had a much <laughs> nicer copy because I went back and bought one after I had just worn the one at the library uh, completely out, uh, and it's, so I still have it sitting in my collection, signed by Ty Templeton with a nice little cool. Batman cartoon from him, and his message was. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> but that was what started it all. And from there, getting into, and it's just, I think, and again, Caleb and I are both in our, in our mid-20s, we kind of benefited from the fact that, at least for the world of Batman, the influence of Denny O'Neill, even though he was retired as Batman editor, was definitely still in the building. And so many of those arcs from the 80s to the 90s and then into the 2000s after he was no longer the Batman group editor are just so strong. And getting to read Nightfall, No Man's Land, oh. Hush, I mean, just so many story arcs early on, as well as uh, I referenced one Jeff Loeb. I need to reference, of course, uh, The Long Halloween, Haunted Night, and Dark Victory. But the first comics I remember buying were at a garage sale. <laughs> And it was a couple issues of Hush, like not even in order. Like it was just like, oh, this looks really cool. And I think I got like issues eight and 11. Then in addition to that, there was actually all six issues. It kind of surprises me to this day of uh, Batman and the Mad Monk from Matt Wagner, which in addition to having like the, the monk as a villain and Julie Madison, it's like it's a perfect retelling of some of the earliest Batman stories that came out in his first couple years of existence. And so Batman was kind of the lens into the DC universe as a whole. And I was picking up a lot of trades in junior high. Uh, my brother-in-law was very into comics, so he would drive me over to DCBS when he was in town. And I started building up a comic book collection and eventually going from trades to buying single issues. I was like, all right, what's going on in the world of Batman right now? And it was not the experience, Austin, that you had with Spider-Man where, oh, new movie, new comic book, free comic book day. This is great. Because as I'm coming out of junior high and into high school in 2009 in the comics, Batman was dead. Yep, yep, yep. And I was reading those so, issues. Yep. Oh, yeah. And I started and kind of trying to figure out what the hell happened. And then my brother-in-law was kind of like, okay, hold on. Here's Identity Crisis. We have to go back a few years. You'll pick it up. There's, there's large events, crossovers, crises. You'll get there. And so... In terms of like full DC continuity, like I have most of the mid 2000s up through to like 2013, 2014, because by we get back to that issue of convenience. By the time I was finished with my freshman year in college, I was no longer making those trips to the comic shop just because one, it was out of my way, and two, it was an expensive habit to a certain point. We're going to 
come back to it just like that time of 2008 and 2009 where a lot of things started to move in a different direction in the world of comic books. Now, I know the next question we have for you guys, we can kind of build up on this because I think we've now kind of given ourselves what was the starting point. A few of you guys already touched on this uh, a little bit, but in general, how have comics shaped your life? And is there like a specific issue or run that like stands out to you or holds special significance? For me, that would be the aforementioned Scott Pilgrim. I discovered that in 08. My gateway into that was Edgar Wright because I heard he was going to be doing the movie. Like I was waiting for his third in the, the Blood and Ice Cream trilogy or Cornetto trilogy. But saw that he was going to do a little movie before that called Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Like, what is that? Is that like the American Revolution type of thing? <laughs> so I, I looked at it and just the tagline got me. A guy must defeat his girlfriend's seven evil exes in order to date her. Like, oh, not ex-boyfriends, okay. exes. So I think exes, mm-hmm. <laughs> exes. exactly. <laughs> like, I think the fourth one had been out at that time. So I just got it, started reading and went, OK, OK, this is interesting. This is a little weird, but OK. And then got to the point where um, the first one breaks through the ceiling of the uh, the auditorium they're playing in and starts fighting him. And my mind exploded. I've since learned that that's the point where uh, when you're either like in that series, whether you're either on board or you aren't. <laughs> I studied film in college and uh, made a few of my own. One of my movies, Dream Cloud, you can look it up on YouTube. But good God, just view it with some <laughs> grace. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. been a while. Was uh, very strongly influenced by Scott Pilgrim. And uh, I was with it all the way up till the movie. It's probably the comic I've read the most often. And um, like just the this, this style and the humor. And like I just kind of absorbed all that into my own life and how I view things and how it influenced my, my sense of humor greatly uh, from then on and just everything that spun off from that. Well, for me, it was going through the uh, flight anthology series where each trade was a collection of short stories based on a certain theme. It didn't necessarily carry through the entire run, but there was one comic by uh, Michael Gagne. He did uh, the Saga of Rex where it's a completely uh, dialogue-free story about small fox in the woods uh, meeting up with aliens and then realizing that he has like a higher purpose of some kind. It's a quick read. Like I do have the trade for it, but just realizing that you don't necessarily need words to tell a story, even in comic book form. I mean, yeah, you do have like silent films, but even then they would have inner titles here and there. This one was the first that I had come across where, again, no words needed. And it was by a guy who had worked on actual films like Iron Giant, uh, Osmosis Jones, uh, Ratatouille. He did like the, like when they're tasting the food and like the different color elements pop up here and there, he did those. He animated those. Yeah. He made that and then. A couple years ago, he had a Kickstarter where he pitched 
uh, turning this into a movie. And he still fully intends to do it on his own dollar, complete control. It's more of right now he's, you know, there are other gigs that come up within the animation field. He did work on the My Little Pony movie here and there. He's still active. He's still very much doing his own work and wants to see his own passion project realized into complete fruition. I'm very much eager to see it happen because he has said that it will also be dialogue free, just like the story. So I'm excited. That makes sense for your love of foxes. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. <laughs> You know, I'm going to go with the Alex Ross two for that everybody goes for because I can't separate these works, even though they're very different, actually. But Marvels and Kingdom Come, they redefined so much for me as a fan. Marvels for making me look at the Golden and Silver Age in a very different light, and especially because Kurt Busiek is such a legendary continuity fan and can tell you the smallest detail as I've discovered in my interactions with the man on Twitter. And then Kingdom Come for making me reevaluate the 90s, actually. You know, because like a lot of people, I had a very dark image of 90s comics. And Kingdom Come was the one that really made me go, no, let's, let's look at this era a little differently. Because aside from stories like Nightfall, the big events, I'd always thought that, oh, well, there just wasn't much there. And what I saw was that, a lot of comics were talking back to the grim and gritty rise, the image rise, so to speak. And that's not to den denigrate what image would become. They would become such a fantastic company and such a model for giving creators room to run. But, you know, in this age, the age of extreme, Kingdom Come is such a screen back at that. And I find that it really holds up. It's such a moving story. It's such a declaration of hope and light, and life, and kindness, and really got me to, that was really the story that got me thinking about Superman differently, actually, uh, because it just really humanized him so much in my eyes, and then, of course, I've gone back to all the 80s and 90s Superman stories, and have fallen deeply in love, so those are my two. Again, just speaking as a Batman fan, yeah, Kingdom Come is uh, one of my favorites as well. I think his first line in that is something like, I bow to your superior wisdom. Yeah. Or something like that. Just, oh, gosh, no. And Alex Ross's art is something else. He's the best of the best. Yeah, I mean, with my relationship of comics being kind of on and off, it's interesting that it's such a recent one. Uh, what was that? A year and a half ago when you let me ex machina? Uh, yeah. And just reading through the whole thing, it's interesting because so many of the stories that I love, like, it's very clear who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And then just the journey you go through through that whole thing and especially the way it ends and it not, almost in contrast to what you were saying, Austin, it not being full of hope and happiness, almost having this very depressing, but sort of realistic and grounded yeah. in, in what would happen in the real world. Uh, having an ending like that, it just, it stuck with me and I found myself days, weeks, even months later thinking about it and being like, oh, I was so frustrated, but yeah, that would be how things would go. Stuff like that just really sticks with me. I will preface this for listeners with a spoiler <laughs> alert for uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I really am happy to hear uh, from uh, Caleb speaking about uh, Ex Machina, because yeah, it's been a while since I've lent that to you, and I'm glad it made such an impact, because it is just an amazing story. 
And I mean, at the time when I first read it, I enjoyed it so much just because the comic book fan who's also a former speech team nerd. Why am I saying former? Who's also a speech team nerd really just loved the dialogue and the political intrigue and the issues that get unpacked within that storyline. But there was a moment in the Falcon and the Winter Soldier finale that made me think of, I think it's the fifth of the trades for Ex Machina, Smoke Smoke, which is the fact that in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the Flag Smashers terrorize uh, the GRC or whatever it is that's making these decisions of global import. And after everything that happens and speaking with Falcon, they decide to go in a different direction. And Smoke Smoke has a sequence that goes the direct opposite direction because there's a woman who sets herself on fire, I think, on the steps of City Hall. And the issue deals with drug crime and mass incarceration. And as the story unfolds, eventually it's discussed, well, she was did this because of this, so we need to do this. And his dep- I think it's his deputy mayor says, no, we don't. We're not going to respond to that. Because if we correct because of what she just did, we're going to have every crazy person who wants us to do something in the entire city burning themselves to death on our front steps. I did think of that at the end of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It's like, yeah, they just gave the Flag Smashers exactly what they wanted as a result of their actions. So it's like uh, you could, again, like feel the how this goes down in universe on the screen versus, again, a a comic book that... uh, still holds up and and sticks with you as far as again just where i credit comics and how they kind of shape my life i would say there's two areas one they gave me a collector's mentality (laughs) which as i got into things like tabletop gaming uh made it uh no less expensive than comic books had been uh as i switched from comic books in high school to largely tabletop games in college and beyond Mm -hmm. and it also thanks to the combination with speech team the perfect intersection kind of of being active in speech and debate and being really into comic books is kind of voice acting. And so I got very into the work of Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy and Tara Strong. And and the fact that I think when a lot of us read the comics, we hear voices of specific actors and usually not the ones from the movies, the ones from the animation. And we'll read lines for the Joker and hear Mark Hamill. If I'm reading lines from Two-Face, I don't hear Aaron Eckhart. I hear Richard Mole. There's so many connections within the again other places that we see the work that's within comic books show up in other places and we kind of, and it becomes again this multimedia experience and that's a good starting point i think given the variety of mediums uh for a specific person we want to reference here we started planning this episode with you guys after you did an interview with uh, jm dimateus And before we get into the metaphor that came up from your conversation with him, I know I lost my mind a little bit when I realized his hand was on the pen for the adaptation of For the Man Who Has Everything for Justice League Unlimited. Could you guys tell our audience a little bit about his background, how he got on your radar, and any other stories that are adjacent to that episode that obviously they aren't going to hear within the episode that you'd like to share? Uh, Feel free. I was the one that made the contact, so it's really this simple. I'm a huge fan of Craven's Last Hunt. That is one of my favorite stories. I'm also a huge fan of his work on the direct-to-video movies. Uh, He's written several of them. And I couldn't decide, did I want to try and go for a comic writer next, or did I want to go for someone that had worked on one of the direct-to-video movies next? 
And so I split the difference and went with the guy that had worked on everything because I thought that would be a much more interesting cast. He's one of my favorite writers, and he would, could not have been nicer through the whole process to just give of his time on a Saturday afternoon to us. Just absolute gentleman. Uh, he mentioned at the time that he had projects that were in the offing, and we now know that one of them is he's gonna he's co-writing the uh, Justice League uh, comic book series uh, that I'll pick up for the DCAU. Fascinating to listen to. I should reference specifically before we uh, unpack it a little bit, for anyone who wants to find this specific episode, again, the Omniplex, and the episode was Riding the Whale with guest J.M. DeMatteis, and it goes through a little bit of everything, and, and we're going to highlight uh, a variety of things, building off of a specific metaphor that he used that uh, I'll go through uh, now to the best of my ability. When I first listened to it, I didn't really consider the title, but near the end of your conversation with him, he used a metaphor that I know I immediately just loved, and clearly you guys did too. The idea was that each writer who spends a little time writing superheroes and other and so many characters that are part of this American mythos, the idea is that they're hopping on the back of this giant whale, and the whale representing these stories and these characters from DC and Marvel that have been around forever. And a writer or an artist or a contributor of some kind who gets the opportunity to be a part of these stories carves their story into the back of the whale. And they do that for the length of time that they're a part of that specific book, that title on the team uh, for whatever is coming out. And eventually they're thrown off the back of the whale. And then someone else jumps on and they carve in their story. How did that metaphor speak to all of you guys as you got to the end of your interview? What were your thoughts walking away from your interview with J.M. DiMatteis? You know, naming the episode is always something that's, uh, well, sometimes, some some are harder mm-hmm. than others. But, you know, towards the end of the edit, it's kind of like, I don't know what to call this one. Like, this is a really good one. And it's a great interview. You know, and sometimes I don't remember things that are said in the cast until I, like, edit them. Because hosting and editing are two different mentalities. Then he did that, you know, the writing the whale thing. It's like, oh, hey, perfect. <laughs> it's just a great, it made me yeah. think of Aquaman. It's an all-encompassing metaphor. It could be anybody writing that whale with, you know, the the writer. You know, like, it's basically all the characters that they are writing for. They're on them, but, you know, they're the only ones that get to stay on. One of the first things that came to mind is, like, years ago, I never would have imagined having interactions like this every now and then. I I just figured that was something that was saved for whatever pop culture convention was going on in town, something that required $30 for a headshot and a selfie, you know, just very far-off dreams, but... Ever since college and having uh, lectures done from people who worked on Frozen or My Little Pony, having those kind of interactions made me realize that, you know, it's only like the only thing that's separating you and someone else is just a little bit of communication between him and Dirk Maggs and Mike Sachs from a few episodes back on our end, it's honestly surprising that I'm just here in Northeast Indiana having these experiences that I never would have dreamed of. Another thing that I took away from the whale metaphor is that there are plenty of stories that are 
out there and have been told and retold many different times, it's really up to me which stories do I find most valuable and how do I want to tell these stories in my own fashion. And I've been collecting influences here and there, like whatever film I'm watching or moments in life where I sit down and go, you know, I might just put that into something. I'm not sure how, but I'll put it in something. And I would love to have some projects fully going, like carte blanche, blank check, all the works, but to be real here, times are tough. But just thinking that I I could make one of those stories in that whale and let someone else see all those influences and be influenced by that and let them take a stab at it. Yeah, Robert Kirkman said after he finished Invincible, his biggest hope and goal for that property and what happens with it is... 30 years from now when he's an old man he wants to pick up an issue of invincible written by someone he's never heard of and absolutely hate it and he's like if i did that then i know that it was successful and i'm happy with where it ended up nice as we started thinking about this episode we realized it could be really fun to talk about the whales the dc and the marvel and the other fish that we have seen continuing the metaphor and Collectively, we could take a trip to the aquarium and talk about some of our favorite stories carved into the whales. We could explore other exhibits that don't come from the whales of DC and Marvel. We could also discuss our own personal fish tanks that we fill with the stories that we've read and collected over the years. And with that, uh, the deep dive will continue. That a lot of aquatic puns in there, so I am so sorry. Yeah, and I think it'd be fun to start with a few of the unsung carvers, the the writers and some of the artists who don't get a ton of focus or attention, but have contributed to this big mythology that exists in this aquarium. Is there anyone that specifically comes to mind for you guys? Someone who isn't as well known that you'd like to give a highlight to? I have a few writers. Certainly, if you're a comic book fan, Dan Jurgens is a name that you know quite well. But I feel like he's he should be seen as a Frank Miller level. I mean, he's much better than Miller, in my opinion. But... Jurgens is one of those guys that I, I, I love everything that he's done. But there's a number, actually. There's a number. I, I truly think that Zeb Wells is a writer that Marvel never, he never gets enough to do, even though he's worked at Marvel so steadily. Uh, he's great. Um, there are so many writers in the 90s. Uh, David Michelini, it's killing me because there's just so many names. Uh, Keith Giffen is a big one. Again, there are people that within the comic community, yeah, you know them. But they're not as well sung. Mark Brooks is one of my favorites. Mark Brooks is a genius artist. Does not get his due. Does not get his due. Uh, and has been speeding up his page rate lately. Uh, he used to be kind of slow, and he's been getting a lot quicker. So those are some names that I really love. And then outside of the mainstream, I'm a big fan of Tom Beeland. Oh, I thought of exactly the one that I want to bring up. Jay Ferber. Jay Ferber and Noble Causes should be beloved by everybody and nobody knows what it is it's a book that's a it's in theory it's a comedy about a a family of superheroes and how they inspire gossip and all that but then it gets really serious about it and it really becomes this very serious emotional story about this family it's it's beautiful it's really well done and 
it's just not as well known. I used to be and like big into My Little Pony. The individual ones I actually did collect on those because I liked some of the covers. And one of my favorites was the team, the artist writer team of Andy Cook and mm-hmm. Katie Price. They kind of led off, like when they introduced those comics, they kind of led off and then just kind of intermittently came back. And I loved the way they told the stories, especially since I think Andy Cook was the one that drew them. He put a ton of background detail. So I loved like, you know, I'm also I was also brought up by Mad Magazine and have to also give a shout out to Sergio Argones. I guess I do know some names, but it's very much a Sergio Argones type of thing where, you know, you look in the margins and you see just just goodies in the margins. And that's exactly what reading those comics was like. I've also read those trades. Oh, yeah. And I I can definitely concur with Albert here about the massive amount of details in there because there were references involved for Phantom of the Opera, Stephen King's It, The, yep, Sopranos. the Sopranos, Arrested Development, <laughs> Gravity Falls. Oh, love Gravity Falls. Big Lebowski. <laughs> they even threw in during the uh, two comic arc where it was a flashback to how Shining Armor met Cadence. I... How did I know that's the one you're going to reference? It's you, the best. you know me all too well, man. But uh, there is a wonderful yes. two-page spread of Shining Armor and his group of fellow basement nerds who play mm-hmm. Hocus Pocus to get together, as it's known in the Ponyverse. But just, they dress up mm-hmm. in every single 80s band you can possibly imagine all of the 80s references <laughs> and what shining armor does is singing a variation of oingo boingo's little girls <laughs> which is a lot <laughs> let let me tell you it's a lot and considering the implications of that song alone when you know the source material it's one of those where you pause and then you just realize oh oh that's what they went with <laughs> For the adults, uh, <laughs> yeah, they, they went, went hard. <laughs> very hard on that. And but yeah, it's one of those where they threw in so many little details. Like in that one alone, there was Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Batman, National Lampoon's Vacation, Blade Runner, uh, Magic: The Gathering, mm-hmm. Devo. There were just so many things that they collected. And made it into their own version. Zephyr, you didn't give us our first reference to Danny Elfman on this podcast, but you did just give us our first reference to Oingo Boingo. So thank you, for, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Mine's a little outside. It's got a foot in the aquarium and outside the aquarium, so to speak. There's a web comic called Order of the Stick, which is written and drawn by Rich Burlew but it does have published collections, but it's about a, so it's called order of the stick because it's drawn in a stick figure uh, style, but he gets a surprising amount of detail and emotion out of his characters from that. But it's about a, a D and D party adventuring through dungeons. And it starts out very small and pretty basic. You know, the bard is, he loves adventure, but he's quite dumb. 
and their ranger is a small little halfling who just wants to murder everything. But as the story sort of advances and grows, it becomes this rich, intricate, detailed world. And the comedy just lands so well. I don't think I've read a funnier comic than that. So Rich Burlew is someone I wanted to give a specific shout out to. I already gave some love to Brian K. Vaughn. Also, I don't think he's an unsung Carter no. by any stretch. He is well decorated. So, But we'll, we'll get back to the other than DC and Marvel uh, elements a little bit later. I am going to reference someone who I know via DC Comics, but I don't think... It doesn't feel right to tier creators anyway, but I feel like if you were doing that, he wouldn't be tier A, uh, and that would be uh, Mark Andreco. Yes. Though my lens into him and his work is uh, his Manhunter run yeah. uh, is really the the extent of my familiarity. But that one has an interesting place just within my comic book collection because if you go to my non-Batman books and, and you're still within DC, it's like, oh, okay, there's the Superman, makes sense, a lot of Green Arrow, Green Lantern, there's the Flash. And then the next big section of trade volumes you'd run into is Manhunter. And the storyline, like just the concept that we're going to take an attorney and essentially the villains that get away with crimes she's going to just straight up wind up murdering and is trying to balance being a divorced single mother and is a female superhero wearing a costume that actually covers her entire body her proportions are such that she'd actually be able to stand if she existed in real life there are so many things that mark andreco gets really well just in terms of realism and representation and the book is great despite one, the fact that so many of the, or at least I think some of the, like about midway through the book, a lot of the storylines kind of got tied into some of the big DC general continuity things that were going on in universe. And so she's defending other superheroes in court and there's all sorts of different scenarios. But thankfully, mid 2000s DC is when I was probably most familiar with the continuity. So it all landed. And I think the fifth trade starts with a, a letter from the author that basically says you don't get to pick when your story ends because Manhunter was canceled. And so the fifth run is we had X amount of issues to wrap it up. And I hope this uh, lends you, the the reader, uh, some closure. We did the best we could with it. And it really is just a very well done story that l lends some additional like, I think a lot of people that are really enjoying some of, like, the Marvel TV stuff right now, it's the fact that we're getting to see some, I mean, they're big in their own right anyway, so calling them side characters maybe doesn't do it justice. But, like, we're getting to flesh out the universe a little bit and learn more about some people that aren't the main heroes that have been carrying the tentpole since the late 2000 aughts. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting to hear about other characters and then also see some of the bigger names and bigger characters through the perspective of someone else who's very new to the universe and just being written in a really interesting way. And I uh, can greatly appreciate Mark Andreco for uh, everything he did on that Manhunter run. This episode's great. It's like two birds with one stone because it's content for the podcast and I get to go back and listen to it later and be like, oh, I need to read this and I need to read this. Is there a specific story from DC or Marvel or any of the other big entities that you guys find yourself revisiting with regularity? I'll go with the really cliched one, but I don't care that it's cliched. And it's already come up in this cast, but Hush. That's fair. I go back to Hush at least once every two years. And I just, I'm always happy with it. And uh, that and Long Halloween. I just, I just like going back to the comfort reads. Did you see the, the animated I movie actually of did. Hush? I'm one of the very few people I think that liked it. 
see, I felt the same way because I love the comic and. Yeah, when they changed things up in the the animated movie version of it, I was actually pleasantly surprised because I, I since I knew the twist, I was waiting for it to come, and then when it didn't, it surprised me even it, more. It were, it really worked quite well, and I'll also throw in if we're going to talk about comics that got turned into movies, I go back to um, a lonely place of dying a lot. Actually, uh, that one got turned into a movie, but that it was amidst the Jason Todd stuff. Uh, a Lonely Place of Dying is one I go to a lot. Uh, Under the Red Hood is great, too. Under the Red Hood especially. I think you have a collapsed lung that always impedes the oratory. Yeah. Had to. Sorry. Yeah. I, I go back to Watchmen every once in a while, and uh, I need to read like some of the Watchmen spinoffs, because there are quite a few now. Watchmen is one I revisit every once in a while, just to kind of, I guess ground myself like as far as like what comics i feel should be as far as like style and also of course you know as per mentioned scott pilgrim that's also a grounding one for me a different and much much different way and also the works the pretty much the entire collected works of brian Lee O'Malley. really really loved uh seconds and that's one that i've also revisited every now and then for me, I know that I am long, long overdue for a reread of Watchmen just to, I guess, refamiliarize myself with uh, the basic plot and all the characters and then eventually get to the Zack Snyder film and then the uh, HBO limited series that came. Oh, yes. Yes. Fantastic. I, I'm not a Marvel or DC person when it comes to like picking a side for like either films or comics. So is probably one of the more difficult questions for me for this cast. But honestly, if I had to pick a side, it would be DC more so just that the animated films hush return the Joker for Batman beyond. Yes. Uh, oh, that one's so good. Yes. Yeah, a lot of the animated films or the animated direct-to-video films I'm watching for the first time, Gotham by Gaslight. Which was amazing. For me, I would need to, if I was actually going to pick up a trade, uh, it would be Superman Red Sun, and then doing like a compare and contrast for the, uh, for the animated film or adaptation for it. Like I'm, I'm a sucker for alternate timelines involving fifties uh, era scare tactics. Uh, I think for me, I tend to go back to the New Fifty Two run of Flash a decent amount because it's it's kind of like a like a warm blanket that you just throw on because it's very like small and grounded. It's pretty much just Flash running around saving people and battling the rogues. Uh, it almost has like a Silver Age feel to it which is, it was fun for the time that it came out. So it's nice to go back to that and just have sort of a small, less universe-spanning story to deal with. The reference to Gotham by Gaslight reminded me of a conversation Caleb and I were having a while ago off the mics. It feels sometimes like we should just have them always running because there's always things that might wind up on the podcast (laughs) at some point. There was a reference to the fact that, oh, so many British actors come to America, they play as many villains as they possibly can, and then once they get older, they play Alfred. Uh, whether we're thinking about <laughs> Michael Goff or Michael Caine, Jeremy Irons, mm-hmm. and then in some of the animated features, you have everybody from uh, David McCollum, who might be best known for NCIS, 
or uh, in Gotham by Gaslight, it's Anthony Head, Giles from yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. <laughs> it was so good. Very nice. nice. If I had to pick something I go back to, I don't know if I can pick a specific series here, but I can pick off of something I already mentioned, the collector mindset. Not long after I started getting into Batman, I started collecting issues from Legends of the Dark Knight, which at the time was the third Batman regular series ever when it first came out in 1989. Ten of the first 20 issues are from Denny O'Neill with the Shaman and Venom story arcs. And sandwiched in between them, you have Gothic from Grant Morrison and Prey from Doug Mensch, Faith from James Robinson. There's just so many amazing early Batman tales, especially in the first hundred issues of, of that book. When my wife and I moved into our our new house a couple years ago, it was an opportunity to reorganize the comic book collection because the comic book collection was getting moved regardless. So it was a chance to kind of, okay, let's figure out where we're putting different things. And I decided to put my Batman comic books in an actual, as close as you're going to get, chronological reading order. So you wind up with things like Shaman in year one, right at the beginning. The Matt Wagner works get in there too. You get uh, The Man Who Laughs and a bunch of other, and of course, uh, everything from Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. But then intermixed with that are so many stories from Legends of the Dark Knight. And it is so fun to go back and find stories that, because early on, one of the stipulations seemed to be they would not include Robin. I don't think he showed up until like issue 50 or issue 100. I can't remember which milestone it was. And then they also usually didn't feature some of the main villains. Obviously, they pop every now and again. You'd get your Scarecrow or your Catwoman or your Hugo Strange. But they were really well done Batman, often detective stories that lean more on the mystery and the problem solving elements than so many uh, other Batman stories that we see in other places. So I, I, I go back to Legends of the Dark Knight just because for it's very much been the am I curating my own collection of fish in a tank, that would be the one. Uh, is there a non-DC or non-Marvel story arc that stands out to you guys? I alluded to uh, Noble Causes, but uh, sitting on my bed right now, actually, is a book that, it's going to sound very out of left field, but Roger Language's uh, Muppets is yes one that I hmm. I don't know why it, and I, I do, do know it's because it's out of circulation, but it's one of the great stabs at media adaptation that we've ever had. It's of a piece with Carl Barks. It's of a piece with Floyd Gottfordson. It's that level of taking a property and then doing something really special and magical with it. Um, I actually have, I bought the Omnibus for $3 because of the fluke sale. And uh, I cherish it. Uh, for me, I think the only thing that comes way out of left field is the uh, the comic run for the Bravest mm. Warriors because I remember seeing the um, like I was way more into it than Adventure Time like same style like same creators but more this is more of a serialized kind of thing so it transitioned very smoothly onto the world of comics and I own the first three trades. The thing that stands out to me, other than it blending really, really well with the like with the web series, is that it does a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the characters to the point where when I rewatched the series, the web series recently, uh, there were things that I remembered from the comic that I thought were in the show. And knowing some of that stuff kind of enriched 
like the rewatching of the show just because I knew it. So I love when it can blend so well like that. So that's what that's what stands out to me. This one does fall under the DC line, but it's one of the far lesser well-known titles out there. And it was Exit Stage Left, the Snagglepuss Chronicles, which re-envisions <laughs> the world of Hanna-Barbera cartoons into the dark and gritty. If Yeah, it's a cliche to use the term dark and gritty, but that's kind of what it is. It's where they take Snagglepuss, a character that was by and large considered a gay character but not explicitly stated and making him canonically gay in this timeline as a gay playwright in the 50s and dealing with McCarthyism. Like he's actually summoned to the uh, the House of Un-American Activities Committee and having to testify. And you also have, like they bring in some of the other and a Barbera characters like Quick Draw McGraw is a cop, and Huckleberry Hound is a closeted gay man who is trying to come to terms with his own sexuality. And not only do they do this, but they also reference uh, real life places. They're within the first issue. You have Snagglepuss uh, sneaking off to go to Stonewall, just kind of. Placing these characters in a real-life American era that definitely deserves, I don't want to say reckoning, but just more of something that we need to keep reminding ourselves of where we were and what has happened since then. You don't hear a lot about it, but it's definitely one run that I would highly recommend picking up. I'll add uh, one in to wrap this part of our segment up, and that would be uh, Lock and Key. Yeah, Joe uh, I, I was thinking about mm-hmm. referencing it earlier. Yes, oh my word. And for, and for those who don't know the author, yeah, Joe Hill is, is the son of Stephen King. And between the New England setting as well as so many of the themes and just the whole vibe of the book, uh, it works so well. And it's it draws you in the first book and this is where we're going to talk a little bit more again about how comic book storytelling really does lend itself well to given they're both kind of episodic the storytelling of television and the fact that the first run does just feel like a season of a tv show the first trade and from there things continue to develop they get more complex the fifth of the trades takes you way back in time and you get so much interesting history related to the mysteries of of key house and the Locke family and uh, the wrap-up, I lent, Caleb, if I'm remembering right, I lent you Lock and Key around the same time as Ex Machina. And for as for as much as Ex Machina can end on a little bit of a downer, Lock and Key actually does leave you with some hope in the world. Which was good. Yeah, I didn't want anything bad to happen to those kids. That would have made me very sad. So stories based off of comic books are everywhere in other media. And it seems like they've been hitting the mark more often than not now with the MCU or shows like The Boys, or comic book video games that have gotten more consistent in recent years. And I think that makes it very easy for us to kind of come in with a recency bias. So I have a challenge, and I want to see what each of you brings to the table. Maybe you can each pick two each. We'll make it a top six. 
if we were to tell our listeners six pieces of pre-2008 comic book stories that can be found in other places, movies, television, video games, other media, what stands out to you guys? And again, there's a few entries uh, given as soon as we're heading back uh, into the 90s. Uh, there are some certain animated series and films that uh, are able to qualify. Uh, some of these might be easier than others, but we'd love to get your thoughts. I'll throw out two that I think are absolutely fantastic, though they're fairly well known, and I was starting to allude to it earlier. The first one that I'm going to throw out is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 1990, which is very well known. Everyone knows that as a movie, but I don't think it's appreciated enough as a really A-grade comic book movie. I mean, that thing is absolutely in the room on getting the tone of the early comics perfect. That thing has the spirit down, it has the tone, it feels like a modern comic book movie that we just happened to get in 1990. It's crazy to me that I saw this thing in theaters at six, but I think that's one that it's unsung. And I'm going to go with a really off-the-rails choice for my, uh, for my second pick, which is I'm going to throw out the 1994 unreleased Fantastic Four movie. Seriously. I think in terms of capturing the Silver Age and what I really love about it, the spirit, the humor, the, the gee whiz, everything is amazing feeling. I love this movie with no irony whatsoever. I think it's a tremendous comic book movie. Yeah, it's held together by spit and glue, but it's wonderful. I love that movie. I've got one that I would pitch, and it would be The Rocketeer. Yes! Even though Disney has tried its best to say, hey, we actually remembered this property, they've not really done all that much with it. Because aside from the film, that it's pulpy, but it's also just plain fun to watch with uh, Bill Campbell and Jennifer Connelly and Ellen Arkin and Timothy Dalton, like, and then getting uh, Terry O'Quinn as Howard Hughes, of all people. That was perfect. Like, yes, it is indeed based on, like, a comic book character, and then Disney sort of, kind of has announced a sequel to it, and then they did a children's reboot for the Rocketeer for their preschool block. But yeah, if you haven't watched the Rocketeer, just, just do so. Just have fun with it. I'm struggling to think of a second pick at the moment. Well, I think one was already mentioned in this conversation, and I don't think I would have jumped right to it because I would have stopped at Batman Mask of the Phantasm first, uh, which, again, kind of obvious low-hanging fruit on that one. Yeah, yeah. But then you guys already mentioned Return of the Joker, uh, which is also an absurdly strong entry as far as animated films out of the Timverse. Yep. Okay, I thought of one. I'm going to have to go with uh, 1985's Ooh, Akira. Oh, yes. Yes. So good. Yeah, because I remember seeing it and just being blown away by the animation and just how smooth it is in the days of pre-CG and how like weird and twisted everything was. And it was just, it was just stunning to me. And uh, every time I go back and watch it, it blows my mind. Like I guess they hadn't finished the comic before they made the movie, so they had to they had to put an ending on there, you know, which is as the case with so many mangas turned uh, anime properties. 
but yeah, it's just it's still stunning to this day. Well, if Albert opened the door to manga, I have to say <laughs> Yu Yu Hakusho it counts. is Yu Yu Hakusho is definitely something that people need to check out. It has like the quintessential tournament arc of just people going in and beating each other up. That is a wonderful list. And given the connection to movies and comics, I feel like I need to ask you guys this uh, before we jump into our next question. Are you guys fans of or know of Patrick H. Willems? I feel like he would be on all of your radars. Uh, yeah, I've had some interaction with him. There we go. Because he did an episode very recently on Batman 66, which I can appreciate if for nothing else other than the wonderful campy Silver Age 60-ness of the whole thing is also what got my dad into Batman and makes it so that the love of that character is something that spans generations of our family. For the film room, we did an episode where we contrasted the Killing Joke animated movie with the first Batman 66 animated movie. And that's one of my favorite episodes that we've done because we really, really, really preferred Adam West in this case. Return of the Cape Crusaders is fantastic. And love that uh, Adam West's last project he got to do yeah. was was a Batman one. Well, with that, let's go ahead and jump into some more of your episodes. Given again, like if we were recommending episodes of our podcast to listen to, we'd have a uh, roughly twelve and probably twelve that we could recommend, and someone could get through them in a day if they really wanted to. <laughs> You guys have been at this whole podcast thing a lot longer than we have. What are some specific uh, episodes uh, that you'd like us to go through and uh, and give a listen to? Uh, I will always uh, go for our um, episodes that we did in our quote-unquote Galatea universe, uh, which is three fake yes. movies that we uh, reviewed. And these are not like 10-minute, oh, we look at a fake movie. I mean, we seriously sat down and crafted these episodes as if we were talking about real movies we made an outline and just sort of uh improved our way through and we could and neither of us could say no to yeah. a detail that we it presented was, those were a lot of fun um i mentioned the, the killing joke uh return, return of the cape crusaders episode my voice was gone in that episode which made it really good when i was dealing with killing joke because my rage just shone talking about that movie. That's probably the angriest I've ever gotten talking about a movie on that episode. And then, certainly, uh, we, we did an episode on Fantastic Four, uh, 1994, where about halfway through, you can notice that we started to realize, oh wait, this movie is not what we thought it was going to be. And that's kind of fun. Too. Those are definitely episodes that I'm pleased with. Um, and we've done episodes where we did aggregates, where we looked at, like, a block of time and looked at every movie. We did 2008 in its entirety, for example. Yeah, I know uh, one of my favorites was uh, watching a movie based on the trailer, you know, that we thought, oh, this is going to be a good one to laugh at because it's it looks like it's going to be terrible. And then going in and being very pleasantly surprised by how funny and well it was uh, done. And that one was where we, uh, it's number 65 of the film room. It's called Comuchos. That was a huge shock to us. And uh, yeah, and that was really fun. It's I love being surprised like that. It sounds like you guys have had an experience that we've gotten a lot of joy out of. Again, even in just doing this for a couple years, the experience of, hey, we should do this. Oh, well, I haven't seen that. And then one of us gets to bask in the glory of something we enjoy and the other person gets to experience <laughs> yeah. something amazing for the first time. 
Zephyr, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I've got a couple episodes to throw in there as well. I would definitely recommend the uh, Cool World episode where it, as well as the, uh, I guess, the cast leading up to it, where we talked about the state of adult animation within the United States and how it incredibly immature it is compared to the rest of the world. That took a lot of time and effort to research. And then we've got a cast coming out very soon-ish where we took a look at children's films from 96 to 2006. There were definitely some, some films that were just best left forgotten or never made. In listening to your show... There is a connection to UHF that I love. Who is or perhaps who are the Weird Al fans of the group? I, I would be curious, uh, speaking as one myself. Present. 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all of us. Oh, yeah. Of yeah, it's all of us. <laughs> we all love Weird Al. We all love Mystery Science Theater 3000. We all love Riff Tracks. It, it's our brand of humor. <laughs> Thank you, Albert, Austin, and Zephyr for joining us here on storytelling breakdown this was an extraordinary amount of fun you've given caleb and i both uh so many titles we need to look up both in the world of comic books uh as well as in the movies and tv shows uh that they have inspired thank you so much yeah thank you guys a ton for joining us it's a pleasure yeah of course oh you're welcome There's a particular genre of tabletop game that Caleb and I both have a lot of fun history with. The Deception Game. One of Caleb's favorites is Secret Hitler. I know. I've played it with them. Also, in the early years of my obsession with tabletop games, I once made my own version of The Resistance. The rules were the same as the game that you can buy from your game distributor of choice, but I put personal touches on it by using, for instance, the marching hammers from the wall as the symbol for the totalitarian government. In general, we're talking about deception games for today's spotlight, but we have three guests joining us remotely who have built their own game from the ground up. I'll welcome each of you in turn so you don't have to announce yourselves every time you speak. John Yale, welcome. Hi, thank you. Ethan Sternkey, welcome. Hello, great to be here. And Alex Shin, welcome. Hey, it's good to talk to you. Before we dive into Intel... Tell me about some of the Deception games you guys have history with. Um, at least for me, Deception games have been some of my go-to games. I grew up playing Mafia. It's not like a card game or a board game, but it's just more like a group game you all get together and play. Then there's also Coup that we recently got into, The Resistance, and Werewolf. Um, I recently got into, I know Ethan has played a lot of Werewolf, but those are kind of my games that I've played. Yeah, for uh, for me, starting in high school, my friends and I started playing One Night Werewolf like all the time, <laughs> pretty much every week. And that started a bit of a passion for those kinds of games um, that eventually led into playing The Resistance, which is similar, but with like two teams. Um, and then, like John said, uh, stuff like Coup and Mafia have also been uh, pretty present in our gaming life. Yeah, Mafia was definitely the, the big one for me. But interestingly enough, even like among us recently playing that and that has more of the 
social deduction aspect to it. And that's what I, that's what I've really enjoyed. And so many deception games really are, I guess the, the term is micro games. They're going to play through relatively quickly. I mean, depending on how many people you have sitting around the table, you can play through them in 15, 20 minutes. Also, depending on which side you're on and things don't go well, it could end even faster. <laughs> I know there's deception mechanics. You have games like Dead of Winter, which have some deception mechanics involved, but are massive in scale and scope and are going to take a significantly longer time to play. I've always loved micro games. And mm -hmm. from what I have seen going in, Intel definitely feels like a deception micro game. So for fans of Coup, for fans of the Resistance, depending on how many players there are, you're going to be able to play through it in a relatively short span of time. That said, it's always a fun opportunity to learn about the game from the designers. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration for Intel and kind of the developments of the concept and how the game works. Initially, we kind of came up with the game. We were on a road trip and we didn't really have anything else to do. We we're just driving down in the middle of nowhere. And I just thought, like, let's just come up with a card game like right now, why not? So we started thinking of different games and our initial idea was to have a single card and somebody starts with that card and somebody ends with that card. But throughout the game, it'll move between players' hands. So then the goal of the game is to figure out and know who has that card at the end of the game. So initially I was kind of thinking mafia, you know, with mafia, somebody starts as the mafia and everybody has to figure out who that is at the end of the game. But the different thing about Intel is that person changes throughout the game. So you might think it's this person, and maybe it is at the start of the game, but then pretty soon, maybe you'll be the person with the agent card, and then it'll get stolen from you. So it kind of has elements of games like that, like Mafia, but it has its unique spin on it. And it is kind of a micro game too, because it takes about 15 to 20 minutes to play. And that's something that's really enjoyable about it. Cause if you want to play just one quick round, you can do that or you can play five rounds and then whoever has the most points after that is the ultimate winner. So you can kind of play it however long you want to. Sort of the micro game concept was pretty important to us. Um, anytime I try to play a game with my family, uh, half are totally into play and the other half are like, how long is it going to take? So uh, if I'm able to say, oh, it takes 15 minutes and you can, you know, join or, or leave whenever you like, um, as well as the simple mechanics makes it really easy to pick up. Usually even the people that ask those kind of questions uh, end up loving it. So that's been a huge plus. Or at that point, a player who wants to maybe sit and watch around can actually do that. Yes, absolutely. You'll get a full picture. One person that I want to make sure we highlight as you were developing the game and also starting your Kickstarter to be able to fund its production and eventual release is a mutual friend, uh, John Caulfield, who we <laughs> had on the podcast for our fourth episode. He taught Caleb and I how to play Young Jedi, uh, a card <laughs> game that came out around the same time as The Phantom Menace and was nostalgic on so many levels. And also actually a, a really interesting, fun game to learn and to play. How was John involved? And take me through some of the development from, okay, this is how the game plays, but you still have to design, figure out exactly how many components are going to be in. You have to play test. There's all sorts of different phases. Tell me a little bit about that process and how John was involved. Back in the fall, I was interning at this design agency downtown Fort Wayne, and we did a project 
that John Caulfield was involved with. So we all got in a call together and funny enough, it was to design a card game or a board game for uh, like the city water of Fort Wayne or something. So he was talking all about board games and card games during the call. And I was like, okay, I'm probably gonna need to talk to this guy later because he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. And he mentioned that he um, owned some uh, board game shops in Fort Wayne. So I was like, okay, I'm definitely gonna talk to him. So after that call ended a couple of days later, I emailed him being like, hey, we're creating a card game. So we just all got together in a call and he gave us a lot of good advice. He was so helpful and so knowledgeable. It was mostly on like the business marketing side of it. So he gave us a lot of tips on like how to design the box, make people feel like it's a worthy purchase. You know, you'll have to get your manufacturer set up really early. Tips for like demoing our game to potential, you know, like Barnes and Noble if they wanted to sell it for us or anything like that. So he gave us tons and tons of options and of course got us connected with everyone. So that was super helpful. And I was like able to take some of that advice and put it towards the playtesting that I did at my school because that's where a majority of our data came from was three of my classes in my senior year each semester actually my professors were really great and let me use it as a project for them and so I took his advice and I put him to the test playing with uh, my classmates and doing real research into uh, some of the stuff he was saying and being able to further it as the proof of concept when it was in that stage. John, if I'm recalling correctly, you would not be the first person to come on this podcast who has experienced a senior project at the University of St. Francis, and you decided to change your project mid-semester, if I'm recalling right? Tell me a little bit more about that experience. Yeah, so it was my senior project, but initially I was doing something else. I was working on a kind of clothing company. So I was designing t-shirts and stuff like that, but I wasn't really as motivated with that. And meanwhile, we were working on the card game and developing it more and more. At that point, we kind of knew we wanted to try to at least get, you know, designs made and see if we can get it published or sell it on Kickstarter or something like that. So that became more and more of a thing that was kind of happening I started designing for that just by myself, not with a project or anything. And I was way more motivated to design for the card game than for my senior project. So about halfway through the semester, I told my professor, and I was, I was really nervous to tell my professor. I was like, he's gonna be like, you can't do that. This is like way too far into the semester already. But he, I already talked to him about the card game beforehand and he knew I was a lot more motivated with the card game, so. I switched it to that and yeah, just from there designed all the cards, the box, the instruction manual, all the Kickstarter graphics, social media posts, all of every Intel thing that you see. It lasted way longer than my senior year because after I graduated, all the base graphics were done. But then when it came to actually producing it, I just had to keep working on it. And, you know, we would change little details about the game, maybe add a new card. It's just been like, a very long continuous project <laughs> but it's been really enjoyable to work on i think it was five months between uh when you turned in your senior project and when we actually put it on kickstarter there's a big difference between productivity and your time and being proactive and where you're actually putting your energy now that we're having this conversation post kickstarter 
I do want to give you an opportunity to plug the website and let people know, hey, if you're hearing this now, how can they get the game post-Kickstarter? What are the next steps? Where do they need to go? You can find our store at IntelCardGame.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intel Card Game. We're doing pre-orders on the decks right now as we're still waiting for the shipment to come in. But as soon as, what is it, October, we're looking to get all of our stock in. And then you'll be getting them along the same timeline as the people who backed us on Kickstarter. As we end our time here, I do just want to ask what's next. The word expansions was already mentioned Plus, would it be so crazy to think, oh, well, we're all in Indiana, and maybe in August of 2022, you guys have a booth at Gen Con. We actually did add an expansion to the base deck uh, because we hit our uh, stretch goals. The support that we saw from Kickstarter was beyond any of our expectations. It was, it was really cool to see. And for one of our stretch goals, we put an expansion pack. I haven't honestly haven't really thought about a second one, but that's definitely possible. The game's base is really simple so it's definitely possible and could be cool as for um potential next projects we do have a few ideas that we're toying with nothing super super solid yet i've been doing a lot of research on gen con and it's definitely something that i would love all three of us to go to Um, and then also actually we have been considering a party pack version so right now you can play with we say four to seven ideally it's like five or six but we'd love to see what a crazy game like that with like, you know, maybe 10 to 12 people would be making a bigger deck. And then obviously the balancing would be a lot different, but you know, that's something that we're looking into as well. John Yale, Ethan Sternkey, Alex Shen, the creators of Intel. Thank you so much for coming to Storytelling Breakdown and sharing what you have created. Looking forward to playing it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs> <laughs>